You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Wow, what a great group of folks. This is so, so exciting to begin to see, uh, you know, more seats filled in and, uh, we're real excited for you being here. Uh, now that um, <clears throat> he is a senior pastor and I'm just the lowly teaching pastor, we're going to have to teach uh, uh, Kelsey how to say Pastor Derek and Pastor James <laughs> to put them in order. Of, oh, the first shall be last and last shall be first. That's, I, the, that's what I've been trying to do. Exactly. I've been trying to be first my yeah. whole life by being last. But, that's right. And one of the things some of you asked, what are you going to be doing? I'm continuing to obviously guide the Sunday morning teaching that Derek and I do, but pretty the senior pastor leadership role has been turned over to Derek in order to free me up to get out there and begin to market the Fearless series for women. Otherwise, it's going to be one of those great things that, was cre- that we created but that nobody ever saw. And I'm going to be spending the spring and the summer at every women's conference in the state of Texas that I can find. <clears throat> I've decided to go, go away from the male pastors. It lands on their desk. Nothing. We're going right to the women. That's right. We will take it to the pastor and say, Pastor, we're going to do this. And we'd really like for you to, let, to agree to it. But if you don't, we're still going to do it mm-hmm. uh, to get this thing done. So I'm thinking about getting a dress and, and, and my, little, my little display thing for the Fearless Series for Women. And, and, and I would go down in history. They would say, that is the... Fearless series, that's the greatest video series I've ever seen, but that is one ugly woman that back is there. one creepy gal. That's <laughs> one creepy gal that's marketing that thing. This morning now, we're in week four of um, All Systems Go. We spent the first three weeks looking at our culture. What does our culture believe? We talked about postmodernism. We talked for two weeks then on critical theory. If you were not here for those, we encourage you to go back and get those. They're on our website. They're on uh, Facebook. You can listen to those. You know, the interesting thing about it is not only are we hearing uh, from people in our church how much that opened their eyes of understanding to what's going on in our culture, but we're getting messages from people all over the nation, all over the country, who are tuning in on that and watching it. People are sharing it, and people that, you know, it's just getting shared. And there's hardly a day goes by that I don't get some kind of direct message or something from someone off Yep. Somewhere else that just said, thank you so much for, for teaching on that subject because it gave me some understanding to really understand what's going on in our culture. That's right. And that's why we did it. So if you've not viewed that, then we encourage you to do so. But all of that was leading up to what we're going to spend the next 10 or 12 weeks doing, and that is where we're going to be exegeting our faith. For the, for the next 10 or 12 weeks, we're going to be doing a systematic... Uh, is this ringing? Or is that just bit. me? We're going to be doing a systematic study, a systematic look into what it is that we really believe, the basic doctrines of the faith. And we call that systematic theology. Every seminary student had to take a course in systematic theology. And we're going to do uh, in these few weeks here what uh, really we should take years to accomplish. And we're doing it because... We need to understand, what is it that the Word of God says about God? What does it say about Christ? What does it say about the church? What does it say about sin? What does it say about mankind? What does it say about eschatology, the the last things, the coming again of Jesus? And I remember hearing a story of a young man who was interviewing for a a staff position on a church staff, and and he was pretty young. And uh, the elders were 
interviewing him there, and, and one of them said, well, how well do you know the scripture, young man? And he said, oh, well, I've studied it all of my life. I think I know it very well. And they said, well, give us an idea, an overview, your overview of scripture. And this is the overview that he gave. There was a man by the name of Nicodemus who went to Jericho by night. And he fell upon stony ground, and thorns choked him half to death. The next morning, Solomon and his wife Gomorrah came by and carried him down to the ark for Moses to take care of him. But as he was going through the eastern gate into the ark, he caught his hair on a loom and he hung there 40 days and 40 nights. And he was afterward hungered and the ravens came and fed him. And the next day, three wise men came and carried him down to a boat dock and caught a ship to Nineveh. And there he found Delilah sitting on a wall and he said, chunk her down, boys. And they said, how many times should we chunk her down? And he said, 70 times 7. So they chunked her down 490 times and she burst and there were 12 baskets of fragments all left over. And in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now some of you didn't laugh. <laughs> some of you did because you understand how jumbled that story is. After the young man had left, one of the elders said, well, you know, men, I'm not sure that we should hire him. He's a little young. Man, he sure does know his Bible. <laughs> so what we're going to be doing over the next few months is we're going to be looking at, at, at Scripture in a systematic kind of way. What the Bible says about the important subjects of our faith, a systematic theology. But before we get into those, we first of all must examine the Scripture itself. We know that we have to have some evidence. Well, is the Scripture uh, authentic? Is the Scripture something that can be trusted to teach us all of these things about God, the church, about man, and about sin. Is it, is it trustworthy? So we're going to start off today with what we believe about the Scripture. And there are some external claims that give us confidence that the Scripture can be trusted to give us the internal claims that it does. Because the Bible says something about itself. Well, I can say anything about myself, but is there anything outside of it that backs it up? And Derek's going to talk about the external evidence for Scripture, and then I'm going to come and I'm going to talk about the internal claims that Scripture makes. And we, are not, we cannot be comprehensive this morning on this subject. There is no way. So we are hitting what we consider to be important high points in helping you understand these things. So Derek's going to come and talk about the external evidence of the, of the Word of God. That's right. Now, as, as many of you know, the Bible that you're holding this morning, hopefully, either in your hand or in your phone, um, is translated from original language. It wasn't written in English. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. The New Testament was written primarily in Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. But even those manuscripts that we have, that's what we call those manuscripts, copies of uh, the original documents are just that. They're, they are copies. In other words, we don't have any original manuscripts at all. We don't have the Gospel of John written by the hand of John. Uh, the authors wrote these, these documents down, and then there was a step-by-step -step process uh, by a group of people called scribes who copied these documents and passed them down and passed them out to where they were able to begin circulating through the ancient world. And this is one of the areas where people begin to criticize the Bible, is that through this copying process, surely there must have been some error that crept in. How many of you remember as kids playing the, the, the game Telephone, right, where like one little girl begins with Pocahontas and it goes around the room and by the end it's like, what did she say? And the boy's like, Donald Trump, right? I mean, it's like, 
how, how did that happen, right? I, it's because surely, you know, slowly but surely, error creeps in and they hear it wrong and then he says it wrong and then she hears it wrong and before you know it, you have Pocahontas turning into Donald Trump. Now, uh, this is what people claim is happening. He gets with, blamed for everything. He does, everything. Okay. Even in the jokes he does. <laughs> so, so this is the, the criticism of the scripture. Surely after years and years of copying these documents, some error had to have crept in. We cannot trust the Bible. We don't even need to look at the internal evidence because it's not even the same thing. The the Bible you're holding today is surely quite different than the original documents when they were written. So let's talk about that. We're going to talk about the manuscripts. There's a lot of different external evidences. And and like James said, we can't do a comprehensive uh, job this morning of of those things. But I want to focus on the manuscripts for a minute because this is a really important detail for whether or not we can trust the Bible's claims. So let's talk about the accuracy of the manuscripts first. It's much more difficult to prove out the accuracy of the Old Testament than the New. The New Testament was uh, written around 2,000 years ago. The documents that we have preserved from the New Testament are in in much better shape than the Old Testament, which began production 3,500 years ago. And even the span of these two documents is very different. The the New Testament span, uh, you can date it from the death of Jesus. Scholars put it no later than about 33 AD. Revelation, the the book of Revelation written by the Apostle John, was written somewhere around 95 AD. And so there is roughly a 60-ish year span between the beginning of the New Testament when Jesus is crucified and raised from the dead and the end book Revelation, about 62 years. Old Testament, significantly longer, right? Uh, The first actual book written, penned, is actually the book of Job, uh, for those of you who are unaware. Job takes place uh, in a time prior to Moses, uh, and, and we don't really know when it was written, somewhere around 18 or 1900 B.C., but when we get to uh, 1 Kings 6.1, we get some really helpful information. 1 Kings 6.1 says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, that's the Exodus, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. Now, it seems like a boring passage that you would seemingly skip over if you were doing a morning devotional, but it's actually a very important passage because historically, we know from other sources precisely when the fourth year of Solomon's reign was. It was 967 BC. And so according to this passage, this was 480 years after the Exodus, which means the Exodus took place somewhere around 1447 BC. Okay? Um, Now, Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, we date to around 400 to 450 BC. So the span of the Old Testament in in its production is over a thousand years long. That's a long time. It's a long time for a document that we have bound together in one book to be uh, written. Now, why do we start in Exodus? Why don't we start in Genesis? Genesis accounts for the beginning of creation. Why don't we start there? You remember who wrote Genesis? Moses did. And when did he write it? During the Exodus. So Genesis through Deuteronomy is really kind of where we begin our beginning point of the uh, production. That's how we, we can know for sure. It's, it's, it's pretty close to those dates. But people will still say, well, but you still don't have the originals. So how, how do you know that your copy of the Old Testament is accurate? How can you be sure? 
The Old Testament was translated uh, from a Hebrew document called the Masoretic Text. I'm going to give you a lot of information this morning, heads up, so just, if this goes over your head, I'm not going to quiz you afterwards, so don't feel any pressure, all right? For you history buffs and people who like data, you're going to love this. Um, There is an entire theological science devoted to what's called textual criticism, which is what he's talking about. How do we understand the authenticity and the dating of the documents? Of the documents, exactly. So they're translated from a a single Hebrew document called the Masoretic Text, the MT is how we refer to it. Um, This is a copy of the, the Hebrew Old Testament preserved by a group of Jewish scribes known as the Masoretes. They translated this between the 6th in 10th century AD. So this is 700 to 1,000 years after the time of Christ, okay? This is a long time after Jesus. But the Masoretes were very strict in their method. Uh, Before copying the manuscripts, let me just give you their method in a nutshell. Before copying the manuscripts, they would wash their bodies entirely, and they would dress in priestly attire. Every manuscript that they transcribed had three columns in it, because it's written in Hebrew, so it's a little bit different form. And they went from the right to the left. They went from right to left. And these three columns, uh, they had a precise number of words and consonants. They would number every single word and consonant from first to last, and then they would calculate the total number of words and consonants in every scroll. Then what they would do is they would pinpoint that middle number, and that was the middle word of the manuscript. Any time that they wrote the covenant name of God, Yahweh, they would, they would wash their brushes before dipping it back in ink to write it. And after they were finished writing Yahweh, they would immediately stand up, leave the room, rewash their entire bodies, and put on a new pair of priestly uh, attire. After they were finished, they would count the words and consonants from front to back, from back to front, They would identify the middle word and count from the middle forward to the middle end to make sure that the numbers matched up. And check this out. If there were up to two mistakes in that entire document, they would correct those mistakes. They would give uh, a, a leeway to make the adjustment. If there were three mistakes or more, the entire scroll was destroyed. Started all over. Started all over. They were very serious about their accuracy. Very serious about this. But still, we're left with this problem that the Masoretic text is only around 600 to 1,000 A.D., right? So 600 to 1,000 years after the time of Jesus. How do we know that those documents were preserved from the originals? Well, for a long time, it was the oldest document we had until about 75 years ago. Uh, some, Some scholars, archaeologists actually, made some discoveries in what we call the Qumran Caves, and a part of the, the, uh, the Middle East, um, they discovered what we now know as, anyone want to take a guess? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls contained major portions of the Old Testament, uh, some of them dating back to the 2nd and 3rd century B.C., so 200 to 300 years before Jesus lived, 1,300 years before the Masoretic Text was finished. And you want to know how they compare to the Masoretic Text? Almost perfectly. Almost perfectly. The differences between these older copies and the Masoretic text are the difference between uh, American English Savior, S-A-V-I-O-R, and British English S-A-V-I-O-U-R. 
They're insignificant differences. Over a thousand years of being copied. Over a thousand years of being copied, and they are, are, are in terms of what they, they constitute, the, the information, identical. Now still, they're not the originals. We have to deal with this problem, right? How do we know that we can trust the Dead Sea Scrolls? Because they're, they're, they're two or 300 years older than Jesus, but they're still not the originals. Well, here's how we can, this is just a good way of thinking about it. Jesus trusted them. And if Jesus trusted them, then we can trust them. If, if there were wrong versions in circulation that the, old, the ancient people knew about, if they knew there were copies of these old books, and some of them were correct and some of them were way off base, you would think that Jesus would warn us about that in the New Testament, because it's what he was reading from. You would think that Paul would write about that. Paul's a Pharisee. Paul is a teacher of the law. This is stuff, this is stuff that he would have been like ardently concerned with. And you never hear them talk about this at all. In fact, instead, they quote the Old Testament all over the place. You can't read the New Testament without coming across some of it. So I want you to do me a favor. If you have your Bible this morning, or if it's your phone, that's fine. I want you to hold your Bible up. And I want you to say with me, I am holding the same Bible that Jesus read from. Now we're going to do the pledge to the Bible. Now we're going to do the pledge to the Bible. <laughs> to no. vacation yeah. Bible school. Yeah. 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 <laughs> good. I don't even know that. I, didn't, I don't either. I didn't grow up in church, so I don't know how y'all, y'all did that. Um, these are extremely accurate copy, copies. That's what I want you to get in your mind. The Bible that you read from, the Bible that you hold, is the same Bible that Jesus read from. The manuscripts are accurate. What about the number of manuscripts? Did you know that we have roughly 24,000 manuscripts of the entire Bible? We have around 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts. We have an additional 8,000 Latin manuscripts. Listen, Plato doesn't even have that many manuscripts, right? Aristotle, Socrates, Caesar Augustus. These are historical figures that no one seems to have any problem with. You will never hear people be like, I don't know if I can trust Plato. I don't know. I'm just not is sure. That, that stuff that comes right. in a can? A little that can that you yeah. pull. Yeah. Do you, know, do you know how many... Do you know how many manuscripts we have of Plato? You want to guess? Really? Someone say seven? It's actually seven. That's the correct answer. Yeah. Yeah. How many of Caesar Augustus? Ten. We have seven of Plato and ten of Caesar. Now, if we applied the same logic that we apply to Plato and Caesar to the Bible, we should have no problem trusting the Bible. It wins every time. This is one of the reasons why I advocate for newer translations uh, the ESV and the NASV, those are the two translations that James and I use, because they're based off of very early manuscripts. Some people have argued uh, that King James is the only English Bible that we should read from. Any, any of you know a King James onlyist? They're, they're, always, they're always just a little grumpy, I've noticed. There's never, I've, never, I've never met a joyful King James onlyist. Um, they will argue that newer translations can't be trusted because they remove verses from Scripture. And so they're usually, this is what they'll do. They'll quote Revelation twenty two nineteen. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away their... Right? And apart from the fact that that's not even about the Bible, that's about the book of Revelation, it's not that the ESV or the New American Standard take away verses, au contraire. It's that the King James Version adds verses to the Bible. Uh, it's based on an older document called the Textus Receptus, uh, which was put together in 1516 by a man named Erasmus. Uh, it was only based on about 500 manuscripts. 
Now, uh, on, on the other side of that, the ESV and the New American Standard are based on not the Textus Receptus, but the Nestle Allen, which has got around 6,000 manuscripts, most of which predate the Textus Receptus. And when scholars began to look at these earlier manuscripts, what they discovered is that there were several verses in Textus Receptus that do not exist in the earlier copies. And based on what we know about scribal tradition, you were far more likely to find scribes adding material than taking away. They wanted to leave their mark. They wanted to be seen. So example, if you have an ESV or, or if you have an ESV, raise your hand. I'm just curious. Okay, look up Matthew 18, 11. That's, we call that the elect standard version. The elect standard version, that's right. Uh, Matthew 18, 11. What you're going to find in your ESV is there is no Matthew 18, 11. It skips from verse 10 to verse 12. Now, the New American Standard keeps it, puts it in brackets. Uh, and so, again, this is where, like, these King James-only advocates will go, See? You know, they've removed parts of the Bible. What else are they going to do? What else are they going to take away, right? When, when the reality is that doesn't exist in our earliest versions of, of Matthew's gospel. And it's actually just a quote from Luke 19.10 that scribes likely added in to make them harmonious. So the number of manuscripts matters. We have a lot of them, and the more we have, the more we can compare and confirm the authenticity of what we're reading. Last, and then I'm going to let James take it over, the confirmation of scriptures. In early history, uh, we find the word canon being used really early on in the early church. It's a word that comes from the Hebrew kane, which is a, uh, a word that means a stalk or a reed. It was a, a tool that the Israelites used to measure things. So canon, the, the canon of Scripture, you've heard that term before, canonicity, uh, it, it comes from the idea of measuring different manuscripts to determine what belongs in the Bible and what doesn't. And pretty early on, we get 66 books. So for example, Melito of Sardis in 170 AD writes, I learned accurately the books of the Old Testament. And he names only the ones that we have except for Esther and there's a good reason for that. Not even 100 years later, Eusebius comes onto the scene. He gives us the full list of the accepted Old Testament of his time, 39 and only 39 books in the Old Testament, the same ones that you have in your hand today. And some of you may be thinking, well, what about the Catholic Bible? You know, it has more books than our Bibles. Where does that come from? That comes from a decision made in the Council of Trent in 1546 A.D., it was only about 500 years ago that they decided to add those things. Now, what about the New Testament? Quickly, Polycarp, uh, 115 AD, gives us a list of New Testament documents. Polycarp was discipled, by the way, by the Apostle John. Polycarp goes on to a disciple, another man named Irenaeus of Lyon. In 180 AD, he gives us his list. Justin Martyr in 165 AD mentions several of the New Testament books. Clement of Alexandria in 200. By 367 AD, Athanasius of Alexandria gives us a full list of the New Testament, and all 27 books that you have this morning are in there, and only the 27 books are in there. Amen. Listen, you can trust your Bible. The external evidence is solid. There's not even a, and this is not even, again, a fraction of it. But you need to understand that our faith, the Christian faith, has more external evidence than any other faith in the world. Muslims cannot make this claim. They do not have the external evidence that we have. Mormons are woefully lacking in external evidence. Nothing holds a candle to the Christian faith's external evidence. You can trust the, the reliability, the trustworthiness of the Bible. And so here's the deal. If you can trust it, then what does it say? We turn to the internal 
evidence. Wow, and I've got 20 minutes. I know. And you just took 20 minutes, yeah, that's all. That's oh, all you I took did. 25. I took 20 because you okay. did the welcome. Now, obviously, as we said, we can't be comprehensive here, okay? Because there are libraries of material written about the subject we're doing in 45 minutes this morning. So we can just stream across the surface. But let's take as a given that, that the Bible is accurate as we have it today, as it was originally written by the hand of Paul, as, 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 as John wrote, that because of this incredible care and uh, reverence that those copyists had for what they were copying down. They knew they were copying down God's words, and that's why they did the kind of things that they did, that we can trust the Bible. That's the external evidence. Now, so Linda, let's talk about this morning then, what do we believe about the Bible? In other words, what does it claim for itself? First of all is the word revelation. Mm. Scripture claims to be a revelation of God to mankind. Now, when we talk about revelation, there are two kinds. There is general revelation, and that is the revelation God has given of Himself in creation that Romans 1 talks about. And then there is specific revelation. And this is when God specifically has taken the initiative in order to reveal Himself to mankind. And the Scripture declares itself to be the written Word of God. It declares itself to be the revelation, the direct revelation from God to mankind. Now, God has revealed Himself in the written Word and the living Word, which is Jesus. And we're going to talk about Jesus in a, in a few weeks when we get to that point. But we're going to focus on the written Word today. That God has taken the initiative to reveal Himself in His written Word. You see, folks, if there is a God, but He does not reveal Himself, we cannot know Him. Right? He must take the initiative. And if there is a God, but He doesn't reveal Himself to us, then He isn't really worth knowing. Right. Our God is not the God of the deist who says, yes, there's a God out there, but He is so transcendent, He is so far away that we can never have any hope of knowing Him. No, that is not the God of our faith. The God of our faith is, God, is the God of heaven and earth who has come and has specifically revealed Himself to us. You see, if God did not reveal Himself to us, then we would be left to our own devices, wouldn't we? And many cultures have taken up these, their own devices. Like you go into a tent and you smoke peyote for about three or four hours. And two days later, you come out and you testify, I have heard from God. God has spoken to me. Well, how do you verify that? You have no verification for that. So there must be some kind of objective resource to measure the claims that people make about God. That is what the Scripture claims to be. It claims to be that objective resource given to us by God Himself in order that we may measure claims that people make about God according to His own specific revelation. Are you with me there? So we believe as Christians that the Bible is a revelation of God, that God spoke to mankind in His Word. So look at it this way. The Bible is the from the mind of God into the mind of man, into the mind of the authors who recorded God's Word, as Derek has just talked about in the original manuscript. So, Revelation is the mind of God to the mind of man. Now, the question then comes, well, how did God do that? How did He get His mind and his words into the mind of these human authors. By the way, there were over 40 human instruments that God used to write the Scripture over this period of time on three different continents. That, 
brings us to the second word, which is inspiration. The scripture claims not only to be a revelation of God to mankind, but it claims to have been inspired by God himself to the authors. Mm. Hebrews 1.1 says that God in the past, God spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and many ways. So we're at a point here where it says that God spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and many ways. Now, those fathers and those prophets were all very imperfect people, right? I mean, Paul was not perfect like Jesus was. John was not. Jeremiah was not. Isaiah was not perfect. So the question is, how then can a perfect God give a perfect revelation of himself through imperfect people? He did so by what the Bible calls inspiration. The Bible claims to be inspired by God. So here it is, revelation, which is the word apocalypsis, which means an unveiling. It is God has unveiled himself to mankind. He has revealed himself, that's the mind of God, into the mind of man. That's revelation. But how does it get then from the mind of imperfect man down to a perfect document that we can trust today? That is what the Bible calls inspiration, right? Revelation from the mind of God to the mind of the author. From the mind of the author to the written document is inspiration. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God, and therefore it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. It's profitable for everything we need to know, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now, the word inspired there is an interesting word. It is a word that appears only one time in the Greek New Testament, okay? By the way, I majored in Greek at Baylor University. I translated virtually the entire New Testament as a Greek student. And we had to do literal translations so that our professor would understand that we understood the grammar of the Greek as we were translating it into English. I would take the New American Standard Bible and, and compare it to my literal translations from the Greek text, and 98% of the time, it was the closest literal translation to the Greek that was still readable that was in print. It's, it's still, it still wasn't as good as yours. No, yeah, the, no, it still wasn't as good as mine, yeah, but right. it was more understandable was more, sometimes yeah. because sometimes literal translations are not really understandable. And so the translators have to do a little bit of work there to make it happen. But this word inspired in the Greek New Testament is the Greek word thelnustos, which is a compound word of the word for God, theos in Greek, and nustos, which is breath. And it literally means... All Scripture is breathed of God. It is God-breathed. Now, it's interesting that we should translate it into English as inspired, because that is an interesting translation of this word. The word that we get our English word inspire from is the Latin word inspirare. Where's my Latin scholar? Where is uh, she? Maybe not. We have a couple of Latin scholars here. So English, a lot of English is from, from Latin. And so our word inspired is from that verb, inspirare, in Latin, which means to breathe into. Isn't that interesting that we translated inspired, theonustos, which means breathed out, with an English word that's based on a Latin word that means to breathe into. <laughs> you get that interesting, not contradiction, but that interesting thing. And here's how you can understand it. This is what this process looked like, that inspiration, what the Bible means when it talks about that God breathed out the Scripture. He breathed out His Word, okay? 
He breathed out His Word, Theonoustos, into the authors, and they breathed it in and then wrote it down. What a beautiful picture, is it not? That as God chose, I have to get this revelation to my people, to all mankind, but I have to do it through these imperfect instruments, so therefore I am going to breathe my word out into them, and they are going to breathe it out onto the document in accuracy, in perfect accuracy. That's all Scripture. Scripture claims to be the thalnustos of God. Peter gives another image in 2 Peter chapter, uh, uh, what chapter it is, verse 20 and 21. What, what chapters I've got there? Yeah. Uh, 2 Peter 20? There's not a 20 chapters in 2 Peter, I'm sorry. It's chapter 2. Yes. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. He said, this isn't these men's ideas. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Here we go. Mm. We're getting this concept of inspiration. How did they know what to write down? Because it wasn't their own idea. They didn't just come up with this stuff. No, they were moved by the Holy Spirit of, of God, who is the instrument of inspiration. Now, again, God's breath is involved in this. The breath of God. Because the word that is translated as moved in many of our translations literally is a Greek word that means to be carried along. And I think the ESV probably translates it that way. Doesn't mean that it's better than the NASB, but it they is. just got this word right, okay? So it means, if you read the ESV, it would say that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, which is really a literal meaning of this word. And Peter, who was a fisherman who wrote this, understood this. It was an appropriate image for what God did. Out on the Sea of Galilee, as Peter would be fishing, he would be fishing in a small fishing boat that one man could man, that he could row, but it also would have a single sail. And on times when the wind was not blowing, then he could make motion by rowing. But when the wind came up, what did Peter do? He raised that single sail, and what did the wind do? It carried him along. These writers of the Scripture didn't come up with this. It's not their own interpretation. It's not their own will. But the Holy Spirit came along, and from the mind of the, of the individual, God spoke in, and then they spoke out as the Holy Spirit came and moved them along. Mm. And that is why the Bible can have over 40 different human authors written over a time span of over 1,500 years on three different continents, but have one singular theme, which is the redemption of mankind, because it only had one author. That's right. The God who has revealed himself to the mind of the author, the, whole, the God who has inspired the mind of the author, who's imperfect to put down in perfect print, his revelation. So revelation is the mind of God to the mind of man. Inspiration is the mind of man onto the document. But that's not where it ends. Because then the third word is the word illumination. Mm. The scripture says that what God does with you and I who have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Which spirit was that? The same spirit that revealed who God was into the mind of the author, and then that spirit who inspired the writing of that down. Where does he now dwell? We have the author of the Bible dwelling within us when we place our faith and trust in Christ. And so what does that indwelling Holy Spirit do? He begins then as we, as believers in Christ, 
opened the scripture that he revealed and that he inspired, he illumines the mind of the believer to be able to understand the scripture. Isn't this great? God has superintended this process right down to this very moment, right now. 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. In other words, John is writing because there were false teachers coming in. But then he says this, and this is just to your average Christian there that he's writing. He says, but the anointing, the Holy Spirit, that you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you, the Holy Spirit, about illumines, about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Abide in Him, the Holy Spirit. Now, what is John saying? He, he says, some are trying to deceive you, but you shouldn't be able to be deceived because you have the anointing. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He abides in you, and you don't even need, you shouldn't even need someone to point this false teaching out to you. You should be able to see it for yourself if you would just let the anointing of the Holy Spirit guide your mind. Mm. He will illumine you to see that this is false teaching. Now, what he is saying here is not that teaching isn't important. He says you should have no one to teach you. No, because God gave the spiritual gift of teaching, right? What he's saying is, if you have the indwelling Holy Spirit in you, you should not be able to be led astray by this false teaching, for you have the very one who revealed it from God to the mind of the author and now has, has inspired the author to write it down and now dwells within you to give your mind illumination to see through false doctrine. This is the scripture, what it claims of itself. God has taken this thing from the beginning to the end. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14 through 16. But a natural man, in other words, the person without the indwelling Holy Spirit, he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they have to be spiritually appraised. You have to have the Spirit to understand the things of the, of the Spirit of God. But he who is spiritually appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Boom. So he's saying that the person without Christ, without the Spirit, to him the things of God, even the things in the Scripture, are foolishness. That's why the non-believer looks at the Scripture and says, that's stupid. Why? Because it is only the Spirit of God that can reveal this truth to him. But the one who has the Spirit of God can look into the Scripture and you, every single Christ follower, listen to this folks, you have the very Holy Spirit that revealed it from the mind of God to the mind of the author, inspired it from the mind of the author to the written document, now lives within you for you to be able to understand the Word of God. Now at this point, let me say, you can't just be sloppy or irresponsible in how you handle the Scripture and then say, well, I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. So He's going to override all my stupidity and just teach me what the Word means. <laughs> It seemed reasonable to us and the yeah, Holy yeah, Spirit exactly. to do whatever yeah, we felt. I just think yeah. this is how it is. Yeah. No, the Father knows the heart. He sees the heart. Jesus said in John 7, 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. In other words, the Holy Spirit, if your heart is there, the Holy Spirit in you will reveal truth to you. 2 Timothy 2, 15 says, be diligent to present yourselves as a workman, to God, 
who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So we can't just sit back and say, well, then I'll just read the Bible and the, whatever the Holy Spirit just pops into my mind, that's going to be it. And I'm not going to do anything else. And the Holy Spirit's going to reveal all this truth to me. Right. But he says, but wait a minute, you got to be diligent yep. to accurately handle the word of truth. So how do we come to the scripture? Let me close this out. And I can't do it in four minutes. If you'll give me till 1020, which is nine minutes, I think I can do it. How do you come to the scripture? The scripture that is the revelation of God into the mind of the author who inspired the author to write it down accurately and now lives within the believer to illumine the mind of the believer so you can understand how must you come to the scripture then for the Holy Spirit to be able to be set free to do his work. You must come desperately first. When you come to the scripture, folks, you have to come thirsty. You have to come desperately. I have to hear from you, O Lord, I am desperate. Psalm 43.3 says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me, O Lord. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. So when you open the word of God, you come as a dying person who has to have water, Mm. who has to have food. The Father sees that heart. You read it contextually. This is about accurately handling the word of truth. To treat it responsibly, you must understand that every verse of the Scripture is written in a context. Now, we do this, we practice this every day in life. If you walk upon a conversation that's going on and all you hear is one last statement, man, you can really get that statement completely messed up, can't you? Because that conversation has a context, doesn't it, that will inform you of what that statement actually means. That's how a lot of gossip gets started. You just hear one statement and... You know, in, in, in news, a lot of times they'll take a quote of somebody, and if they have a, a purpose that they want to bend that quote, well, they'll just pull it right out of its context. And out of its context, it can mean exactly opposite of what the individual meant to say. But when you put that quote back in its context, you go, oh, that's not what he or she meant at all. You understand how important context is? When you're in the foyer and you hear James say, yeah, this summer I'm going to go to all the women's conferences. <laughs> Why? You could take that to say, well, our former pastor. (laughs) Former senior pastor at every women's conference. He is the former senior (laughs) pastor now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If you pull it totally out of its context, you're going to miss its meaning. As a matter of fact, (laughs) I just did that with the first John passage where it says the context of that statement that you have no one need to teach you. That doesn't mean that. Teachers are not important in the faith because God has given the spiritual gift of teaching. But you could, if you just took it out of his context, you could make it say that. Well, I don't need anybody to teach me. The Holy Spirit's going to teach me everything. Right. It's in the context of false teaching. He's saying you shouldn't have to have somebody come along and teach you about this for the indwelling spirit dwells in you and he will teach you. So he's not saying that teaching is not important. But if you want to just pull it out of his context, you could make it say that. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the old hunting, hunting peck version of reading the Bible, you go, Oh, I need to, I need to hear a word from God. Damn, open my Bible and put my finger down. Mm-hmm. I heard the story of a guy did that one time and he put his finger down and it said, and Judas went out and hung himself. <laughs> and the guy goes, man, I don't like that one. So he closes his Bible, opens it up again, puts his finger down. And it says, go and do likewise. <laughs> That's not how you hear from God. That is not handling accurately the word of truth. So we read the Bible contextually. Look at the verses before. Look at the verses after. Look at the, 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 the book of the Bible it's in. And then understand it in the context of the holistic revelation of God. Third, we must read the Bible grammatically. In other words, 
grammar matters because the Bible is written in human language, and human language is made up of, of syntax and, and, and grammar and, and prepositions and verbs and nouns and all of those kinds of things. So just sometimes by misunderstanding one single word, you can change the entire meaning of a verse. And this is just in English, let alone getting back into the Greek and the Hebrew. Oh, yeah. If I say, shut the door, lest the air get out, that's different than shut the door because the air is getting out. Real close, but totally different meaning. Our third way, shut the door before the air gets out. I mean, the entire meaning can turn on one adverb or preposition or... You understand what I'm saying? And a lot of human error has come with not being grammatically correct as we come to the Scripture. Fourth, we must come to the Scripture historically. Mm. Here's the question. When you read the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, first of all, you have to understand, well, who was this particular, who was the audience at the time this was written? Who, who, was, who, were the, who was Paul writing the book of Ephesians to? To the Christians in Ephesus, okay? So at what point, Old or New Testament, in biblical history, was this written? To who was it written? What did it mean to them? See, if I don't understand what it meant to them, I can't understand what it means to me. If I miss what it was originally written to mean to its original hearers, then how in the world am I ever going to understand what it means to me and how to apply it to my life? So we must interpret the Bible historically. Let me give you an example. The book of Leviticus was written to Israel. The Hebrew people, while they were in the wilderness wanderings, camped at Mount Sinai for quite a time. The book of Leviticus in the Old Testament is filled with all kinds of moral instructions that God gave to His Old Testament people. How they were to act, what they were to do, what they were not to do, how they were to interact with one another, all of those kinds of things. And also how they were to be set apart from the unbelieving nations around them. And so as we as Christians, not under law but under grace, we read the book of Leviticus, much, of, much is revealed to us. There's great things that we can learn from Leviticus. We can, talk about, we can learn about the holiness of God. Leviticus is about the holiness of God and how He's called His people to be holy and be separate from the, from the world. And, and so many things that we can learn from, from the character and nature of God and how we are to live that are reiterated in the New Testament. But we're not under the book of Leviticus as Christ followers. They were not commands given to Christians. They were given to the Old Testament people of God, the Hebrew people. Now, here's one way that the things like people pulling it out of its historical context, how it can cause problems. <laughs> Leviticus 19.28 says, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. Now, there are many Christians today then that say it is a sin for a Christian to get a tattoo. Really? Well, if you're going to take Leviticus 19.28, you're also going to have to take verse 5. It says, When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that it may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or the day after. So if you're going to take verse 28 as meaning us, that means we still have to be offering sacrifices. You can't just pull one verse out of the book of Leviticus and say, Well, this applies to us, but that one doesn't, obviously. None of it applies to us in Christ. There are great things we can learn about the character of God and how we are to be holy. But they were specific historical instructions given only to the Old Testament Hebrew people of God. That's right. Do you get that? Lots of bad stuff gets taught. But I don't just, like tattoos. Well, I, I didn't either until I went to Hawaii and got yeah. drunk. Yeah. No, I didn't. 
That's how rumors get started. My wife and I were in Hawaii about 10 years ago to do a 40-year renewal of the vows for some church members, a medical doctor and his wife. And while we were there, I'd never had a tattoo. And my kids were saying, Dad, get a tattoo. And I saw a tattoo shop and said, I'm going to get a tattoo today. You do things in Hawaii that you wouldn't do in Fort Worth. So anyway, we must interpret it also theologically. If the scripture says that Jesus was hungry... Well, then don't immediately say, well, if Jesus was hungry, he couldn't have been God because God doesn't have physical hunger like we do. Interpret that. You have to interpret that theologically, what it's speaking about there in Jesus' full incarnation, taking upon himself the full human flesh and experiencing everything that we do. In that sense, Jesus, God in the flesh, experienced hunger. And you must must interpret it transformationally. If you want the Holy Spirit to be able to illumine you, we're talking about how you can rightly divide the word of truth. If you come to the Bible, not just to gain information, not just to check a box that you did your your Christian duty for the day, which is read a couple of verses of Scripture, but if you come to the Bible and you read the word of God to be changed, to be transformed in the mind, which is what God does as He changes us, The Holy Spirit living within each and every one of you will illumine your mind to know the Word of God. Mm. Isn't that cool? That God from the beginning has superintended this process. He revealed Himself into the author's revelation, apocalypsis, unveiling. Then he inspires the mind of the author to write it down to the document perfectly as God, as it was in God's mind. And then he illumines the mind of the reader who has the indwelling Holy Spirit to accurately and rightly divide the word of truth so that we may not be left wandering around smoking peyote in a tent somewhere, wondering how do we hear from God? You can hear from God in his word. Amen? This is what the Bible claims for itself. And I believe it, not only because of what Derek said, but a whole lot of different reasons. That's right. Fulfilled prophecy is one of those that we didn't even have time to get in. That's three or four Sundays by itself just to scratch the surface. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word that is yours, that you superintended, that it was your sovereign purpose and will to reveal yourself. And you've done so. You have done so in your written word. And it stands before us today as your revelation to us. I pray for someone in this room who does not, has not ter- committed their life to the Lord Jesus, and thus the Holy Spirit is not dwelling in within. But I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you will open their understanding to their need, first of all, for the Lord Jesus as Lord and Master, and receive that indwelling Holy Spirit so they can come to know you fully in your written word, as well as your living word, which is Jesus. May we stand firm always upon your truth. No matter, Father, how much it puts us at odds and at contradiction to our world, may your people love only your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, let me say real quickly in the seats, when you came in, there were little cards. Uh, Those are Easter invites. We've got plenty more of those in the foyer. If you will take as many of those as you intend to hand out and give them to friends or family, We'd love to see them here next weekend in our outdoor service. It's going to be a great week outdoors. We're going to have good weather. Plenty of space. God bless you. We'll see you.